The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. We're on a journey through this great Old Testament prophet's writings, focusing on key texts that highlight his vision of the good news. He was the first prophet in the Old Testament to use the language of, of gospel, good news, for that end times portrait of the reigning God, saving and satisfying believing sinners, ultimately through the suffering, servant saviors, death, life, death, and resurrection. And Isaiah envisioned it all, at least in small part. First Peter one tells us that the prophets of old who, who foretold the grace that is ours searched and inquired carefully. What were they searching? I think their Bibles. Texts like Moses. Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because Moses wrote about me. These prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was foretelling the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The Old Testament prophets were searching to know what person and time the Christ would come, who He was. They had some sense, and yet it was also told them It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but us, upon whom the end of the ages has come. That Isaiah's book was written for Christians to celebrate the servant Savior. We have eyes to see through enlightenment, and we have a lens, Jesus, for for understanding what we're supposed to be seeing as we approach his book. So... We're in Isaiah 49 today, picking up where we left off last May, and we're going to have a little bit of a, of a review. Isaiah 49 is the second of four songs of the servant. Two of them are sung by the servant, two of them are sung about the servant. You'll remember that I, in Isaiah 40... Through 53, the term servant shows up 20 times, always in the singular. Then, from Isaiah 54 to 60, the term servant shows up another 11 times, always in the plural. Something happens in Isaiah 53 that transforms the servant into servants. We saw in Isaiah 49, just let your eyes go there, that the servant was talking. A servant who is, in this text, an individual. We have some texts. um, For example, at the end of Isaiah 42, where the servant represents the nation. There it says, Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I send. Who is blind is my dedicated one. He, namely the nation, 
That servant nation sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. The nation is the servant, but not in this text. Notice Isaiah 49, how, it, how it's set up. Listen to me, the servant cries out. He calls the coastlands to receive his mission. Listen to me. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me, says the servant, from the womb. So already we've heard about a child in this book. Isaiah 7.14 A child will be born from a virgin, and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6, a child will be born to you, a son will be given to you, and the government will be upon his shoulders. That child is now grown. That is the same child that we read about in Isaiah chapter 11, where, and I argued this when we were there, the wolf will dwell with the lamb in his day, the leopard will lie down with the young goat in his day, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, a little child shall lead them. And I argued that that's the same child we've been reading about. This messianic servant king who chapter 11 says is going to be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, this, this servant, royal servant, is proclaiming something. He's saying, God called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, He named my name. Wonder what His name is. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. So He has a, a verbal mission that is piercing. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He's protected by the living God. He made me a polished arrow. In His quiver, He hid me away. He said to me, you're my servant. And then he named him Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So this is a servant, and his name is Israel. But are we talking about the nation? No. Look down in verse 5. And now the Lord says, the very one who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says to me, it's too light a thing, my servant Israel, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Israel's role is to save Israel. We have Israel the person, this royal kingly figure who can represent the entire nation. And his name is Israel, Jesus as we know him now, is Israel, embodying in himself all that Israel was supposed to do and be. Securing for all those who are in him all that God promised to this nation. Where Israel the nation fails, Israel the person succeeds. You are Israel, my servant, and I've called you to redeem ethnic Israelites, Jacob, Israel, but it's too light a thing, he says in verse 6, that you would only bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations. Now, in the Old Testament, that word nations is always translated nations. When you cross the Testaments and you get into the Greek text, everybody always translates it Gentiles. And that's most of us in this room. 
This individual standing as the king of the nation of Israel will redeem on the other side of death and darkness, on the other side of exile. Not only Israel, who's now in captivity, but the whole world that's under the captivity of the devil. He will restore and reconcile and bring peace with God. We read in verse 8. Well, verse 7, sorry. The Lord says, The Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Still talking to the servant. What does He say? Kings shall see and arise. Princes, they shall prostrate themselves because of Yahweh, who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And that you there is masculine singular, just like the servant in the preceding text. Kings will rise and then bow before you. They'll see you. Then we move into verse 8. In a time of favor, I have answered you. Again, masculine singular, talking about this singular king servant whose name is Israel. In a day of salvation, I will help you, O servant Israel. I will keep you. He's going to be protected by his God. I will give you as a covenant to the people. So there's always in this book a distinction between the people, that's ethnic Israel, and the peoples, that's the nation. I'll give you as a covenant to the people. But in verse 6 he said, it was too light a thing that you would only save them. I'll have you save the nations as well. I'll give you as a covenant to the people. All of a sudden, this, this term covenant is, is huge. We've been anticipating a prophet like Moses. Moses was the mediator of an old covenant. A, mo- a covenant that bore a ministry of condemnation. A covenant that destroyed... It's the covenant that dominates the initial three-fourths of our Bible. We read about it in the Old Testament. The early church fathers called it that, testamenti, meaning covenant, because the Old Covenant's what dominated the initial three-fourths of the Bible. Whereas the New Testament, New Covenant, is what dominates the last fourth. That Old Covenant was the age of Moses. But we've been anticipating, since Deuteronomy Fifteen, a prophet like Moses, to whom the people would listen. These people didn't have ears to hear. They were deaf. To them, the Old Testament was more like a closed book. They couldn't encounter God through it. Their hearts were hard. But the day would come when a prophet like Moses, not just any prophet, to be like Moses, Deuteronomy 34 tells us, he has to see and know God face to face. He has to do wonders and miracles like Moses did in Egypt. He has to be able to mediate a covenant like Moses mediated a covenant. And now we're reading about this servant king who will come into the future, who will stand as a covenant. His mediation will actually... In his own person, he's going to embody this thing somehow. 
He will stand as a covenant for the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out! To those in darkness, appear! They shall feed along the ways. On a bare heights they shall, shall be their pasture. They'll no longer hunger, neither shall they thirst. That's language that's pulled right into Revelation 21. No more hunger. No more thirst. That's what He's going to bring. For He who has pity on them will lead them. Where will He take them? By springs of water. I'll make my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Sounds like Isaiah 40, which we looked at last spring. There's one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. And that's John the Baptist's words, anticipating the coming of the Christ. This is using the same nouns as we saw in Isaiah 40. So, we come to verse 13, and the servant says, not just to the outer banks, the coastlands, where the nations are at the farthest, farthest reaches of the globe, he says, sing for joy, O heavens, exalt, O earth. He just brings in the universe. Break forth, O mountains. Why? Because Yahweh has comforted His people. They were filled with tension and curse. And now they know comfort. Isaiah 1 tells us that they were broken, like sick people needing a doctor, and now they've gained healing. Behold, these shall come from afar, from the north, from the west, these from the land of Syene. They're going to all gather in. So sing for joy, because the Lord is comforted and will have compassion. Now, what's clear in this text is that this great ingathering is heading somewhere. It's heading wherever God is. They're gathering to the living God. And the location of God's presence in the book of Isaiah is associated with a mountain named Zion. So we hear, listen to me. We hear, sing for joy. And now we come to our text for the day and we read, But Zion said, there's a problem. Because the Zion that Isaiah is talking to is not the Zion of the future. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 is going to call Jerusalem our mother. Hebrews chapter 12 is going to say, all of us haven't gathered to Mount Zion. We've gathered right now, all of us who are part of the church, have right now gathered to the heavenly Jerusalem. The Lord said to my Lord, this is David talking, Yahweh said to my Lord. So David, the psalmist of 110, has a Lord 
And Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's Pentecost sermon quotes that text and says, right now, in light of the resurrection, the Yahweh, the Lord, has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. God's dwelling is in Zion. And He's there right now. But don't confuse ultimate Zion with Jerusalem across the sea. The Jerusalem that became the capital of Israel in 1948. Isaiah is envisioning where God is right now. You'll remember... In Exodus 24, when God first gave directions on building the tabernacle, which settled its place in Jerusalem, and it became the temple. In Exodus 24, God told Moses, Come up on the mountain, and I will show you what I want you to build on earth. He saw something up in the heavenlies, for which what was on earth was merely a picture. The book of Hebrews, reflecting on Exodus 24, says, where Jesus paid for sins was not in the temple made with hands, the temple on earth. Where He paid for sins was the temple made without hands, in heaven. An ultimate Jerusalem that we have gathered to and that ultimately, Revelation 22 says, will actually come to earth. It will make up the new earth. It will overcome this world of darkness with the beauties of God where He sits enthroned. Zion is crying out as we open up this text. Zion said, the Lord's forsaken me. My Lord, the Sovereign One, has forgotten me. So Yahweh, L-O-R-D in all caps, Lord, lower case, you've got a distinction between God's name and the Sovereign One. In the day that King Uzziah died, Isaiah chapter 6, I saw the Lord, lowercase, I saw the Sovereign One seated on His throne. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Isaiah is not seeing the earthly temple where a glory cloud sat, where Moses tells us, You saw no form, only fire and darkness and cloud. Isaiah's seeing something different. He's moving beyond a heavenly temple and seeing an actual person seated on the throne. He's transcending the earthly sphere and actually getting a glimpse into a heavenly reality. Zion, Jerusalem, says 
Has Yahweh forsaken me? Has the Sovereign One of all the earth forgotten me? Now, why would they say that? Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. Spent three weeks on this first chapter last year. You're not offspring of God, offspring of the woman. You're offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken Yahweh. Has God forsaken us? No, God says, He's already told us in the book, they've forsaken Him. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged, separated from the living God. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint from the sole of your foot to your head. There's no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. The entire country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And here's our word, the daughter of Zion. Notice how Zion's being portrayed here as a mother that has children. Zion is an entity. It's the city. It's, it's, but it's, it's not just a place. It's, it's all that is bound up in the people of God through the ages. It's, it's the people where, within whom God was supposed to be reigning, and they've given birth to a present generation that's left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. And now Zion is wondering, do I have any offspring? Is there any future for me? Has God totally left me? Now Isaiah, what he's doing is he's envisioning a future of exile and brokenness. He's preaching before the northern kingdom falls, Samaria. And he's preaching in anticipation of the fall of the southern kingdom, Judah, in 586. But it's bigger than that. We saw last year, when we looked at Isaiah 24, that the judgment on this single nation is only a picture of the judgment, the curse that fills the whole earth. Israel's problem, Zion's problem, is a world problem. And we've seen many echoes of God's earlier promises that He would fix not only Israel's problem, but the world's problem. So God starts talking in verse 15. Another statement about their sin. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tingling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. The Lord will lay bare their secrets. So we come to the body of our text for the day. And it's all a long, a long response to that statement of hopelessness. And the hopelessness that Zion feels is, according to Isaiah 24, a hopelessness that fills the whole world. A separation from God. Does He really care? Has He forgotten us? 
has he forsaken us? And this is such a, a beautiful testimony coming from God, put in our Christian Bible to give hope for those who feel estranged. Yahweh makes a claim right off the bat in verse 15. And he just gets really practical. I mean, he just brings it as personal as he can get. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. There's a number of moms in here. And he's trying to awaken something for those that can relate to it. You, you tangibly say, he, okay, he's ma- building an analogy here and I'm supposed to understand the fierceness of a mother's love. And yet, God's also talking to people that live in a very broken world where, yes, it is true, even a mother could turn on her own child. We have categories for that. To feel the depth of a mama's love and then to recognize, even though it's beyond our grasp, for whatever situation, it does happen. And he says, not with me. Never. Never. The Lord will never forget. Even if a mother forgets, yet I will not forget you. And this you here is feminine singular, which is how cities are talked about. It's Zion. Everything that we're going to read in the rest of the of this message is all directed to Zion the city. Zion, a mother. Zion, whose Lord or husband is Yahweh. And Zion is His bride. And Zion is representative of something bigger. All the people that are, are built into Zion become the bride of Yahweh. I will not leave you. Even if you can can fathom a mother leaving her child, know this, my affection is deeper still, and I will never, will never leave. He continues. Give me some proof. Okay? Here's my proof, 16 through 26. He's going to declare the proof itself through memorial. I've engraved you, don't think people per se, although it's all these people are going to be identified with Zion. Zion is the city. And I've engraved you, he says, on the palm of my hand. Every time he looks, he sees. 
it's, I mean, it's, it's being portrayed somewhat like there's a tattoo, a mark, but it's on his hands. This morning during the service, I just was a little bit overcome as I was meditating because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, and these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And years and years ago, when we went through Deuteronomy 6, I noted that within the book of Deuteronomy, hands relate to things that people do. Sight relates to what they see, their perception. So, Putting on the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your being. To actually bind those words, hear, O Israel, and love, O Israel. To bind that on your hand means to let that radical vision of a a ginormous God and my love for Him influence everything that I touch and all of my perception. Then we move to Revelation 13, where we come to that language of the mark of the beast. It starts out, the text, by talking about people who have the mark of the Father and of the Lamb written between their eyes. And then we get to Revelation chapter 22, and we find out that in the new earth, everyone there will have the name of the Lord written between their eyes. And I think what it's declaring is, is this is what's going to, we bear His name. And when we went through the Ten Commandments, I noted that to take the name of the Lord in vain isn't first and foremost about lip service. The verb is to bear the name. Meaning that you have taken it on. This is about witness. Do you bear His name well? You carry it. You proclaim it. Does your life live in accordance with it? How do you do bearing His name in your hands? Bearing His name between your eyes. And the day will come in the new earth when everyone will bear the name perfectly because His his name will be written between our eyes and He will really consume and control all of our perception of reality. Every desire, every hunger, every longing, every act, every word will be honoring to Him. And then, here's where I was overcome. On our hands and on our eyes is supposed to be the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And I will love Him with all. And I say, well, what's on God's hands? And He tells us right here, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. What does this imply? 
That every action that he's engaged in is ultimately for the sake of his bride. Drawing her in to love, to provide, to protect. It's both hands. He's surrounding her. He's caring for her. I cannot forget you. You were always with me, Zion. What does it look like? If I was to look at those palms and see what's stamped on them, what would I find? He goes on to tell us. The location of the memorial, the nature of the memorial. Notice what he says now. Verse 16b. Your walls are continually before me. You've got to think about the city and what this represents for the city. A city that he has already envisioned has been ultimately destroyed. He's envisioning, I I see something beyond what you see. You feel alienated. You feel empty. You feel unprotected. What I see, as I look into my hands, my purposes declare, I see your walls all built up. That's where you're heading. What else do you see? Now, verse 17, the ESV translators made a decision here. And they made the decision in light of the word for walls, which precedes it. And the fact that desolation follows it. But, in the Hebrew text, you have two words that can look alike in various forms. Bane, B, N, those two letters, Bait and Noon, the B and the N sound. Bane means sun. Bana means to build. B, N. And in certain forms, the A-H at the end of Bana gets taken away. And the Hebrew text that I have in front of me doesn't read builders here, a participle, those who build. Instead, it reads sons. And it does alter the meaning a little bit. And because all the rest of the text is going to be about children, that is the children of the mother, Jerusalem, the mother Zion coming back, I'm prone to think that this should read sons rather than builders. That it's the sons. Your sons have made haste. Now there's going to be a a, a switch that's going to come when we get to the middle of verse 18. Because then all the verbs are going to alter into future. Up till then, all the verbs are actually past tense. So I've I've rendered them differently. You can see it a little bit, but the ESVs made them all present time. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers are those who laid waste. And those who laid waste Go out from you. You could, I think, 
it would be better to render it, your sons have made haste. Your destroyers and those who laid waste have gone out from you. Lift up your eyes and see. They all have gathered. They have come to you. So here's a forsaken Zion, and God is giving them a glimpse of what's on His hands. Look, walls are built, and when I look, what I see is an ingathered people with no one to harm them. As if it's already happened. As if, look, the city is filled with children. Children of the mother. And there is no one hostile there. Look! Look with your eyes! Can you see it? And it's as if he's holding up his hands to them. What's engraved on the palm of my hands? Look around! Can you see it? So this has to speak... This isn't talking to buildings that make up a city. The city is, is being personified and understood to be filled with people. The question is, for the reader, are you identified with this city? Whose king is the Lord? Are you identified there or are you not identified there? Are you a child of this city or are you not a child of this city? When I look at my hands and and consider my purposes, all that I will do and bring about, what I see is a rebuilt city with no enemies there to hurt. And what I see when I look at my palms is my love outpouring on an ingathering of my children. Remember, he's the husband. Jerusalem is the bride. And it's as if it's already happened. That's the point of the the Hebrew forms as I'm as I'm reading it. It's as if it's already accomplished. It's on his hands. This is where I'm heading. Everything I'm doing, all that you don't understand, all that I'm holding back from you. It's moving somewhere. And where it's moving is a reestablishment of my bride filled with offspring, filled with children who are perfectly protected, perfectly supplied for. In verse 15, he's simply making an analogy in present day life. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? So, there he's just, he's just talking about Um, He's giving an example outside of his story that compares, and he's saying, even if she would forget, I will never forget. Now he's just going to unpack. You've seen my hands. What in my mind is already accomplished. I am the husband working on behalf of my bride, in gathering my children. They're already there in my mind. This is what I see. These are my purposes. I'm giving you a glimpse as to where I'm going because right now you don't feel it. Right now you feel alienated, empty, distant. But those who are truly identified me have a future and it's already written in my hands. What are some of the implications? And this is 
beautiful and we may not get through them all. We start out in verse 18, second half. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them on as an ornament, as an ornament, you shall bind them on as a bride does. Well, we could go down just a little bit further and see who's the them. Surely your waste and your desolate places, surely now they'll be too narrow for your inhabitants. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me. We could go down there and see that he's talking about the children. But if we read sons instead of builders, we already have an antecedent, a referent for these pronouns when the pronouns are given at the end of verse 18. You, O Zion, shall put on your children as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride. Now, we can automatically go to a text like Ephesians 5, right? Where husbands are called to love their wives, wives are called to cherish, respect their husbands, in order to put on display a parable that has greater implications of Christ and His church. What I want to see, I'm not going to go there. We're going to go to Revelation 22 really quick. And I just want you to see how Jerusalem is talked about. Revelation 22. Oh Zion, I haven't forget you. As I live, I'm going to make an oath before you, the Lord says. You're going to put your offspring, your children, the offspring of Zion. Zion is my mother. Galatians 4, 26. That's what Paul says. Zion, Jerusalem that is above, is my mother. The church is the children of this bride. We, we make up the, the bride together. I'm the offspring of this Jerusalem. In Revelation 22, we read this. And we'll be coming back here when we get to Isaiah 65 and 66. Verse 9. I came out, then came, sorry, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now we're thinking, probably, they're going to get to see. He, John's going to get a, a, a glimpse of the church that is the bride of Christ. How many would think that? I would. Oh, Revelation 21, sorry. Revelation 21, verse 9. Come out and I will show you the bride of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. He's being united with His bride. And then it says, so come out, come. Come over, follow me right now. I'm going to show you the bride. And you begin to follow. You're John. And then verse 10, And he carried me away in a spirit, in the spirit to a great mountain, and he showed me, look, 
and we're expecting the bride. But what does he say? And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Come, I'll show you the bride. And he showed me Jerusalem, a city with twelve gates and twelve foundations upon which are written Israel and the twelve tribes. He showed me a city where it had perfect cube-like formation. 12,000 cubits by 12,000 cubits by 12,000 cubits. And there's no temple in this city because the Lord and the Lamb are that temple. There's no night. There's only day. The walls are massively thick, emphasizing protection. Yet there's 12 gates that are open all the time. Emphasizing complete freedom. You're not scared in any way. And gathered there are the kings of the nations and all the peoples who have gathered in that make up the bride. Like a bride adorned, all the adornment of this bride that is a city is the children. The children are the very adornment of the bride. And the bride of the Lord is Zion. So, if we were to try to draw all this out, it would get a little difficult. But this is how he's talking. He's, he's, got, he's trying to portray a vision for us of something massively beautiful that we can understand the gist of. That the city is a people. And that people are the bride. And they are engraved in the palm of His hand, perfectly protected, safe. We continue. Look at verse 19 and 20. Surely... Your waste and your desolate places, again, your is feminine singular, he's still talking to Zion. Your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will not be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. Sorry, it doesn't say you will not be too narrow, you will now be too narrow. Everyone who, how many have visited Jerusalem over there? Some of you? So we're talking, the city of David is a pretty narrow strip. About 100 yards wide, 300 yards long. Not a big city, the city of David. Then you add the Temple Mount, it's a lot bigger. Then you add the rest of the city itself. But, but Jerusalem proper is built on a very narrow hill. And on each side of that hill is a valley. And that's so if the people are thinking about Zion, they picture one thing. They picture what they know of over there. And it's too narrow. It can't fit the people of God. Because there's going to be massive growth. Zion in Isaiah's day is feeling empty, feeling barren. All the children are gone. There's no life. 
But what it's envisioning is that there's going to be increase, expansion. Ah, I knew I had it. Look at chapter 54 with me. One through three. Isaiah again talks to Zion. God, through Isaiah, talks to Zion, the mother, the one who feels barren and empty. Paul's going to draw on this text in Isaiah when he reads in Galatians 4 Sarah and Hagar as a picture of two covenants. And Sarah was the barren mother who not until her old age bore Isaac. And yet Hagar was flourishing. And yet God had promised that through Isaac the offspring would be reckoned and through that offspring that all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Israel's history has been extended over a long period and the offspring of Sarah hasn't come. The nations are still not blessed. It's a long, aged experience without hope without help. All the while, the Mosaic Covenant, which Paul says is a picture of Hagar, is flourishing, yet without hope. Flourishing not in relationship with God. Flourishing after their own lovers. Flourishing in wickedness. But it's through Isaac that I promised that it would come. So that's Paul in Galatians 4. We come here. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Twelve tribes under the Mosaic Covenant flourished, yet resulted in death. Offspring of the ultimate Zion, innumerable. Enlarge the place of your tent, O barren one. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen the cords of your tent. Strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right, to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations. They'll people desolate cities. There's something Isaiah is seeing here that relates to our passage. We're going to pick it up next week. But what we're seeing is that the offspring of the new Zion is going to be bigger than ethnic Israelites. It's actually going to possess nations. It's going to require Jerusalem to be bigger than it ever was. The Jerusalem that Isaiah has in mind. 
And already we're going to see, in the book, we've already anticipated this. Isaiah chapter 2, the nations in the last days will gather to Jerusalem to hear the law of the Lord. We've learned that it's the servant through whom the law comes. In the last days, Isaiah chapter 2, in the Greek translation, that only shows up in the last days, shows up only one time in the entire Old Testament. And then... It shows up in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, at Pentecost. And I think, and that's, there, it's a part of the Joel, Joel 2, this is what Joel said was going to happen. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. But that in the last days part isn't part of the Joel quote. You can go back to Joel 2 and see it's not there. So where is he pulling the in the last days part from? I think he's getting it from... Isaiah chapter 2. But he's seeing at Pentecost this outpouring of the Spirit that gives rise to the book of Acts from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. What's happening is the presence of God that was located in Jerusalem is now embodied in the person of Christ. He sends His Spirit and Jerusalem begins to grow. People begin to encounter the temple. Zion begins to expand, but not physically. Not not geographically through the hearts of a people. The offspring will include nations. And now I recall Galatians 4, O church, made up of adopted Jews and Gentiles in Jesus, Jerusalem is your mother. Hebrews chapter 12, O church, you haven't gathered to Mount Zion, burning with fire and smoke, you have gathered right now to the heavenly Jerusalem. We're going to see, I think this is exactly where Isaiah is going. This is how he's thinking about his vision. And through Paul, and through Jesus, we can even read it clearer. He's talking to a future Zion. The bride of the Lord that we're a part of. And the declaration is, I've got you in the palm of my hands. It's all there. I see your security. I see a great ingathering. I see a day when you will have no one fighting against you. No more pain, no more tears. And as we're going to see, Isaiah envisions all this happening through the servant Savior, and He has come. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the awesome, awesome picture that Zion, as secure, Zion as filled, Zion as omni-ethnic, is inscribed in the palm of your hands. And you are working even now to fulfill those purposes. Thank you for capturing us and identifying us with the new Jerusalem. Thank you that we have new birth certificates in this room declaring this one was born there. Help us rejoice in new birth, 
full adoption, a new mother, and a new father. We praise you in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.